We're going to be in Genesis, <clears throat> Genesis chapter 46. Last week <clears throat> in chapter 45, we saw that Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers and encourages them and calls them to come to Egypt where he promises to provide for them. The famine, as we saw, was was severe in the land and, and in Canaan, but there was food in Egypt. There was grain in Egypt. This call to join Joseph in Egypt includes his father, Jacob, who up to that point thought Joseph was dead, if you remember. And now Jacob <clears throat> learns that Joseph is alive. Quite an emotional couple of chapters <laughs> that we have here. And in the beginning of chapter 46, Jacob receives a vision in the night where God promises to go down with him to Egypt, confirming this decision. And so Jacob and his household begin the transition, begin the journey to move to Egypt and reunite with Joseph. So we'll begin reading where we left off last time. Chapter 46, verse 8. Verses 8 through 27 comprise a, a genealogy of Jacob or Israel's family that moved from the land of Canaan to Egypt. And so we start to see that the budding family begin to be referred to as the children of Israel. And we won't really go too much in detail in this portion. Um, I'm just going to go through it and, and have some comments here and there. But a more detailed version of this genealogy is presented in Numbers 26 and in First Chronicles 2 through 8, with different emphases in those passages. And just as a quick disclaimer, I'd, I know some of these names, but I didn't have the time to look up every single pronunciation, so bear with me, please, as we go through it. <clears throat> Verse 8. Now these were the names of the children of Israel. Jacob and his sons who went to Egypt. Reuben was Jacob's firstborn. The sons of Reuben were Hanuk, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi were Gershon, Kohath, and Merai. The sons of Judah were Er, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar were Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun were Sered, Elon, and Jalil. These were the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padan Aram with his daughter Dinah. All the persons, his sons and his daughters, were thirty-three. The sons of Gad were Ziphion, Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Erodai, and Erili. <clears throat> the number seven is featured in this genealogy as a whole, and as we'll see going along, that Gad here in particular is the seventh son listed, and he himself had seven sons. 
Verse 17, the sons of Asher were Jimna, Ishua, Isui, Beria, and Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Beria were Heber and Malchio. These were the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter. And these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, were Joseph and Benjamin. Though Jacob had descendants through not only Rachel, but Leah, Zilpah, and Bilhah, I believe it's significant that Rachel alone is given this title and status of Jacob's wife, the one whom he loved and worked 14 years for. And one thing, I don't want to go off on too long a tangent here, but one thing is important to note is that sometimes there are things in the Bible that are descriptive, but not necessarily prescriptive. And some minority Mormon groups use examples in the Bible to justify uh, polygamy, right? And yes, we see that God allowed certain practices, uh, like multiple wives, concubines, and that sort of thing in the Old Testament. But this wasn't the way it was meant to be. Remember Jesus when speaking to the Pharisees in Matthew 19, he said, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So Jesus is not disputing the law here, but what he's saying is that he's pointing to God's original design and intent. One man, one woman coming together in marriage. And of course, this union of one man, one woman represents the union of Christ and the church. So it's sacred and it's right. And so there are, there are different uh, different interpretations be- behind why this is pointed out here. And, <clears throat> but I believe personally, I believe the statement is is a, just a subtle reminder of, of God's original design and intent. Verse 20. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. The sons of Benjamin were Bela, Becker, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Muppin, Huppin, and Ard. These were the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. So we see Rachel, who is at first barren, remember. She now has 14 descendants, double the the divine number, or seven, uh, offspring. <clears throat> the sons of Dan were Hushim, or the son of Dan was Hushim. The sons of Naphtali were Jazeel, Guni, Jezer, and Shalem. These were the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and she bore these to Jacob. Seven persons in all. So we see seven again. All the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt, who came from his body, besides Jacob's sons' wives, were sixty-six persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two persons. All the persons of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were seventy. So we see this emphasis on the number of perfection or completeness, the number seven we got 17, 70 total persons after Jacob. Joseph and his two sons are added. 
This number, I believe, is symbolic of the entire family. They are completely uprooting and moving to Egypt. I believe the genealogy is given here, not just as information, but is showing the beginning of the promise that God first made to Abraham. And God repeats this promise to Jacob on three separate occasions. First in Genesis 28:14, where God says, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. And then in Genesis 35:11, where God says, a nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you and kings shall come from your body. And now here in chapter 46, verse 3, God says to Jacob, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. So this is repeated three times. And remember, we learned back in chapter 41 that if a thing is repeated twice by God, it's established and shall come to pass. So what about three? It's three times. And we see this promise begin to take fruit later when Moses refers to this in Deuteronomy 10.22 when he says, Your fathers went down to Egypt with 70 persons. So he references this. And now the Lord your God has made you as the stars of heaven in multitude. And at that time, the promise hadn't fully come to pass yet, but you see God's promise unfolding over the generations. So Jacob comes to the land of Egypt and to the land of Goshen. Verse 28 Then he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. It's noteworthy that we see of all the brothers, Judah, from whose line of descendants would come the Messiah, he begins to become more prominent, starts to take on more of a leadership role. And remember back in Genesis 37, Judah is the one who persuades his brothers to sell Joseph to the Midianite traders. Judah says to his brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. So he persuades his brother here. The commentator Nahum Sarna notes that it is only fitting that Judah who bore responsibility for separating Joseph and Jacob, should now be charged with arranging the reunion. So Judah has quite the character arc in Genesis. After selling Joseph to the Midianite traders, we read about the affair with his daughter-in-law Tamar in chapter 38. There are definitely a lot of low points in his life, but God was using even those sinful choices, those sinful circumstances. Because remember, Tamar bears Perez, who is in the line of Christ. So Judah persuades his brothers. And then in Genesis 43, we see that Judah persuades Jacob to bring Benjamin with them to Egypt to present to Joseph. In verse 8, Judah says to Israel, his father, send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. So Judah seems to be quite the charismatic one, always persuading, always trying to persuade the other party to see his side. And so he he begins to be more prominent among his brothers. And later in chapter 49, Jacob, when he says his last words to his children, to Judah, he says, Judah, you are he whom your brother shall praise. 
Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. So Jacob sends Judah before him to Joseph to point out the way. And Joseph made ready his chariot in verse 29 and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. So Joseph doesn't even wait. He makes ready his chariot. He goes, he goes to his father and he presents himself before him. Just think about the scene here. Jacob hasn't seen Joseph in over two decades, right? And he's presumed him dead this whole time. And remember back in the previous chapter, when Joseph's brothers told Jacob that Joseph was alive, it says Jacob's heart stood still because he did not believe them. Judah and the other brothers didn't have social media back then, right? They couldn't just take some selfies with Joseph, you know, and send that to Jacob, you know, not just as proof of life, but, you know, how... Joseph must have, his appearance must have changed over those two decades, especially being in Egypt. <clears throat> but now, Jacob was going to see his long lost son with his own eyes. And what a sight that must have been. It says Joseph presented himself to him. The phrase, this phrase comes from the root word to see. And it could be translated appeared before him or become visible. Uh, the last time Jacob had seen Joseph, remember, what he, he, Joseph was just a boy of 17 years old. And when we see, our, when we see kids grow up, right, we're, we're surprised at how quickly things, they, they change just over even a short time. And so, you know, we, we think of Jacob and, and you know, the, what's in his mind is probably this image of this 17-year-old boy whom he raised and and now this Egyptian ruler shows up in, in his chariot, unrecognizable from the boy whom he loved and had given a coat of many colors to all those years ago. So I interpret this as Joseph in some way makes himself recognizable. And I don't know what that would have looked like, but he does and they, and they embrace. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. What a scene this must have been. It reminds me of when the prodigal son returns to his father. Of course, Joseph was the opposite of the prodigal son in character. But, but the imagery has some parallels. And both accounts say that he fell on his neck. And this phrase is meant to describe an, an intensely emotional embrace. Uh, today we might call it a bear hug. And the only other time this phrase occurs in scripture, besides this, the parable of the prodigal son, actually involves Jacob, again, uh, when Esau reunites with him. Uh, and it says Esau fell on his neck. <clears throat> we see another parallel, going back to the parable of the prodigal son, when the father, remember he says, for this my son was dead and is now alive again. And Jacob doesn't verbalize this, at least it's not recorded. But I can imagine similar language going through Jacob's mind, you know. Joseph, of course, wasn't dead, but he thought he was dead. And now, now he finds out he's not only just alive, but he's the ruler of the land, ruler of Egypt. And Israel said to Joseph in verse 30, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, because you are still alive. Jacob's perspective since Joseph had been taken from him, had taken on kind of a morbid bent. 
And one could understand he had experienced significant loss. As we'll see later, he tells Pharaoh, few and evil have been the days of my life. After losing the love of his life, Rachel, he then treasured the sons that he ha- that he had together with her, and especially Joseph. Right. He made a coat of many colors for him. And, and one could argue that it was this favoritism that led to all of this in the first place. Right. But of course, we know that God was working uh, through all of that, according to his sovereign purpose. But now we see Jacob's attitude shifting. Right? When he thought Joseph was dead, he refused to be comforted, remember? For he said, I, I shall go down to my grave to my, to my son in mourning. And then when Joseph's brothers came to fetch Benjamin, Jacob said, you have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin? All these things are against me. And then he said, if any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. So you can hear the dark and depressed perspective that Jacob had. All these things are against me, right? But now all that has changed. Now these words of let me die carry a different meaning. He's at peace having seen Joseph alive. There's nothing more he needs. He can now finally depart from the world. Now let me die. This reminds me of Simeon in Luke 2. When he sees the baby Jesus, it says, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. In other words, he was ready to die now that he had seen the Messiah. And so here we see yet another typology of Christ. Jacob has now seen the salvation of himself and his family. Joseph has, in a sense, saved them from death by the severe famine, by bringing them to Egypt, bringing them to where there was bread and grain. And, And as we'll see in verse 12 of the next chapter, Joseph provides bread for his father and household. Verse 31. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and those of my father's house who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds for their occupation has been to feed livestock and they have brought their flocks, their herds and all that they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation that you shall say your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth, even till now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now, we saw in chapter 45 that Pharaoh, having learned that Joseph's brothers had come to Egypt, He invited Joseph's family and all of Jacob's household to come and dwell in the land of Egypt. He says in chapter 45, verse 18, bring your father and your households and come to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you will eat of the fat of the land. Now, at that time, Pharaoh likely didn't know that their occupation uh, was as shepherds. So Joseph plans to come again to Pharaoh and give him account of how his father's household had come 
and tell them, tell Pharaoh that their occupation is as shepherds. Which in verse 34 says, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now, this is an interesting phrase and this idea of this occupation being abominable or detestable or even loathsome to the Egyptians has perplexed many commentators, including Jewish ones. And we don't have time to get into all that, but different reasons have been proposed to why that's the case, um, such as maybe shepherds were considered a, a lower class, inferior to the Egyptians, um, or loathsome because it was a dirty occupation. <clears throat> now remember, the Egyptian culture emphasized and prioritized cleanliness and hygiene. Right? They, they shaved their head. They, they were clean-shaven. They wore linen clothes. They didn't typically wear wool. Uh, wool <clears throat> would absorb body perspiration and other things, and it would become smelly, stinky. <laughs> and so that's likely what shepherds would wear. They wear wool. And so there might have been this negative association with unclean, uncleanliness. <clears throat> so it could have been full, uh, offensive to that culture. Uh, however, there's another explanation that um, has its roots in the historical context. This may be more likely, but just another um, explanation. And a lot of scholars have talked about this, that the Egyptian lands had at various times in their history been overtaken or inundated with uh, people referred to as the Hyksos. Not necessarily the Hyksos, though it, that's true as well. But the Hyksos was a, a general term meaning rulers of foreign lands. And uh, Aaron Pinker, in his work Abomination to the Egyptians, notes that the Egyptians had used this term since the Middle Kingdom, well before the Hyksos, as we know them, took control of Egypt, to describe the barbaric nomadic chieftains on the northeastern border. These nomadic chieftains were often shepherds. So it's possible that this association also existed in the time of Joseph in Egypt reinforcing the natural contempt between farmer and shepherd. So it's possible that the arrival of Jacob's household uh, as foreign shepherds may have been seen negatively by the Egyptians, just based on this association. And it could have been a combination of things, right? The cleanliness issue, the inferiority complex. But nonetheless, Joseph is upfront about his family's occupation. And he wants his brothers to be upfront about it as well. And so that's interesting because in Joseph's father's, you know, as you remember from previous lessons, that there, there were some issues with deception, right? Abraham lied, Isaac lied, Jacob, of course, the supplanter, the deceiver. And so it's just interesting that Joseph is, you know, we know Joseph's character, honest and upfront about everything. And so it's just interesting to point, point that out. Now we come to chapter 47. Verse 1, then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. And indeed, they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds. Both we and also our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to dwell in the land, 
because your servants have no pasture for their flocks. For the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Here we see what I believe is the main reason why Joseph directs his brothers to inform the Pharaoh of their occupation. Not simply to be honest and truthful, despite the loathsome nature of their occupation, because there was a real need, right? Because of the famine. Joseph's brother ha- brothers have raised livestock and, and their whole household and their fathers before him. They, that's all they knew. They had raised livestock and sheep all their lives. And so because of the severe famine, they no longer had any pasture for their flocks. But in the land of Goshen, it appears that there was plenty of pasture for them to dwell and attend after their livestock and their flocks. So it seems to be a perfect fit for them. Now, it's interesting. Notice how Pharaoh receives them. He receives them graciously and offers them the best of the land. And it's it's in contrast to this this phrase about being abomination to the Egyptians. And we see kind of the opposite reaction with Pharaoh. He's gracious, offers them the best of the land. And I believe this is because of their relationship to Joseph, right? His second in commands, he knows they are not just foreign invaders trying to take advantage of the grain in Egypt. So verse 5, Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. So Pharaoh even goes beyond just living in the in the best of the land. He says he offers this uh, position of chief herdsman to Joseph's brothers. And so this offer of making Joseph's brothers chief herdsman over Pharaoh's livestock, to me, casts some doubt on the idea of this occupation, the occupation itself being considered inferior to the Egyptians. <clears throat> but yeah, it's, it's no it's no doubt for Joseph's sake that Pharaoh is this generous. Uh, Joseph is highly esteemed by Pharaoh. He respects him. And now seeing his family come, he is gracious. So verse 7. Then Joseph brought in his father Jacob and set him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how old are you? It's an interesting question. This question might be prompted by Jacob's aged appearance. Um, Certainly, as we'll see, he was 130 years old. That, that's old. <laughs> and it, but it's also possible this question is prompted by Pharaoh becoming aware of the large size of his household. He had many sons, many children, and grandchildren. And Jacob, verse eight or verse nine, Jacob said to Pharaoh, "The days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years." John Gill notes in his commentary that quote he calls his life a pilgrimage. As every good man's is, they are not at home in their own country. They are seeking a better, even a heavenly one. Jacob's life was very emphatically and literally a pilgrimage. He first dwelt in Canaan. From thence he removed to Panaram and sojourned there a while and then came to Canaan again. For some time dwelt at Succoth and then at Shechem and after that Hebron. And now he was come down to Egypt, end quote. 
So he's moved around quite a bit. He literally is a pilgrim in the land. So Jacob continues and says, Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. So Jacob, the last of the great patriarchs, would live another 17 years. He had raised Joseph for 17 years, and now Joseph would care for him for 17 years. So from 130 years, as Jacob says here, he would go on to live to the grand old age of 147. So that's definitely not few to us. But remember that Abraham lived to be 175, and his father Isaac lived to be 180. So relatively few. But there's another sense in which this could be taken, and that is few as in time passing in such a way that you know it makes life seem shorter than it is. Right When Jacob worked for Rachel, or worked for Laban for Rachel, for seven years, and, it's, and it says they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. But Jacob doesn't say few and good. <laughs> he says few and evil. And indeed, his life was a hard life. Uh, and some of that being consequences from his own choices. From his youth, remember, he took advantage of Esau, took his birthright, and then deceived his father and stole the blessing from Esau. And then he had to flee because Esau was going to kill him. And, and then it turns out Uncle Laban wasn't, so, wasn't such a good uncle. <laughs> he deceived him. Laban deceived Jake, or Joseph, or, yeah, Jacob and changed his wages ten times. And Jacob ultimately ended up working for Laban for about 20 years. And then Dinah's daughters violated, and he learns that his son Simeon and Levi were instruments of cruelty, as he points out in in chapter 49. Then he has to bury the love of his life, Rachel, on the way to Ephrath. Then he loses Joseph. And now this famine. So few, few and evil. And yet, God was with him this whole time. And was with him even now, even at this present time, as he comes to Egypt and stands before Pharaoh. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. And Joseph, verse 11, situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Then Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread according to the number in their families. So we come to the end of our passage for today. And throughout Joseph's life, throughout Genesis, as we've seen, we've seen glimpses of Christ. As we know, Joseph is a type of Christ. And this comes through the text in different ways, to different degrees. And we've touched on it already. But in this passage, I wanted to focus on three ways that Joseph typifies Christ. First, notice that Joseph represents his brethren before Pharaoh and advocates for them. And we see this in a couple of places in chapter 47. In verse 1, right, it says, Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds, and all they possess have come to the land of Canaan, <clears throat> and indeed they are in the land of Goshen. And then in verse 5, Notice that though Joseph's brothers interact with Pharaoh and request to dwell in the land, Pharaoh ultimately addresses Joseph when giving his response. Joseph's brothers needed an advocate in the presence of the king. 
these dirty, abominable shepherds from the Egyptian perspective needed someone to speak on their behalf to the king of the land. For all the Egyptians knew, and Pharaoh especially, they were just more foreign, loathsome you know, nomads who want to take advantage of the, the food in Egypt. Without Joseph, his brothers and father's household would not have found favor in the eyes of Pharaoh. It was for Joseph's sake that Pharaoh bestowed the best of the land. Right? And so we see without Christ, we cannot find favor in God's sight. As dirty, abominable sinners before a holy God, we desperately need someone to speak on our behalf. God's righteous law has found us guilty on all counts. And there is no way we can make it right. Nothing we can do. No way to pay off the debt. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, Ephesians 2 says. Jesus, our elder brother, is not ashamed to call us his brethren. Remember how Joseph's brothers mistreated him and did great evil to him, sold him into slavery. But Joseph loved them and he forgave them. And now he pleads their cause before Pharaoh. Though we were his enemies, Jesus shed his blood for us. And even now he pleads our cause. Now, First John 2, 1 says, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, the analogy can only be taken so far, right? Unlike Joseph, Jesus is not second in command, as it were, right? Not second in the land. Yes, when Jesus was on this earth, he submitted his will to the Father. He took the form of a bondservant and condescended to earth. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death on the cross. So therefore, Philippians 2 says, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. He is the king of kings, co-eternal, co-equal with God the Father. He is Jehovah. So who else could be a better advocate for us? Not Mary, certainly not any saint or great patriarch. We needed God himself who had to be made like his brethren so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation for our sins. So Joseph typifies Christ here as our advocate. Secondly, we see that Joseph provides for his family's, uh, for his father's household, and he made plans to bring them to Egypt for that purpose, and specifically to the land of Goshen. During the famine, Joseph makes sure his family's cared for, right? He sends his brothers back with sacks loaded to the brim with grain. And in Genesis 45:23 it says, He sent his father these things, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and food for his father for the journey. And as we journey in this life, God has promised to supply our needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. But the provision here on this earth is a temporary one, right? We're, we're ultimately we're pilgrims in this life and we look forward to being reunited, as it were, with Jesus in heaven. And just as Jacob journeyed to Egypt, we are on a journey towards heaven. And Joseph was not going to just let his family, his, his brothers and his father, just wander into the land aimlessly, right? There was a specific, suitable place that he had in mind for them, the land of Goshen, right? Jesus says in John 14, In my father's house are many mansions. 
If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. What a promise. Through Joseph's death, from Jacob's perspective, and everything he he had to go through, he became highly exalted and secured a place for his family in the land of Goshen. Through his death on the cross, Jesus has secured a place for us in heaven, and he has become highly exalted. Now, unlike Egypt, our place in heaven is secured for all eternity. Right? Egypt was a good place for Jacob's household and family for just that particular season. and But it, it would not last. And in fact, it would become a source of pain and misery for the children of Israel as they became under bondage and became slaves there in Egypt. But Jesus has secured a place for us in heaven that will see every tear wiped away. There will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. And we will worship the Lamb of glory. Thirdly, and this is related to the second point, notice in verse 12, again, then Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread according to the number in their families. During their time in Egypt, Joseph supplies his father's household with all the necessary provisions. And he does this according to the number in, um, in their families, it says. So he's aware of all the needs that exist and distributes the provision so there's no want among them. <clears throat> Bread, especially in this time of famine, was essential for life. When we can go a short time without food, but not for too long. Christ supplies the needs of his people. He is the bread of life. But it's more than just physical nourishment, as we know. And just as physical food is essential for our physical life, Jesus is essential for spiritual life. Jesus says in John 6, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. He satisfies our deepest needs. And the song we sang this morning, Satisfied. Feeding on the husks around me, it says, till my strength was almost gone. Longed my soul for something better, only still to hunger on. Hallelujah, I have found him whom my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies my longings. Through his life, I now am saved. Is Jesus just an add-on to your life? You know, you have your work and your family and your religion so that's the way it is for many people. Just one of the many things that we, we add on to our life. Or is he the foundation upon which everything in your life is built? Take away your job. Do you still have him? Take away your friends. Do you still have him? Take away your family. Do you still have him? Take away your health. Do you still have him? It's easy to say. And often when, it's only when those things hit us in our reality, does that answer become more real to us? Does he satisfy your hunger, your longing? Is he your all in all? I pray that he is. I want to encourage you, hold on to him. Hold on to Jesus. Look to him. And one day we will be reunited with him. And I'm looking forward to that day. Let's pray. 
Our Heavenly Father, we are 